His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to His and Hers Horror. My name is Tia. And I'm David. Hey, David. Yeah? What's one thing I'm afraid of? Deep oceans. That is true. What is something that is similar to the deep ocean that also frightens me? Deep lakes. Something... Uh, mm. Why do I do these guessing games with you? I don't know. What? <laughs> I mean, I'm not wrong. I know, you're not wrong. Okay. Okay. The two things that I find truly terrifying, just the general concept of them, uh-huh. are the ocean. Yes. And space. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Fucking command and conquer. I have talked before on the pod about my fear of the deep ocean and water in general. If I can't see the bottom, it, it freaks me out. Yeah. Just because I'm worried about all of the things that I cannot see. The primal fear of the unknown. Yes. Isn't it gorgeous? It's not great sometimes. I would like to limit my number of existential crises. <laughs> Fair. When it comes to stuff I can't do anything about, like the ocean. Hmm. Just thinking about the Mariana Trench kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. But space also, but that same, there's so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that can go wrong when you travel in space. Yes. The, the concept of ever traveling in space just freaks me right the fuck out, because there's so much that could go wrong. And it excites the hell out of me. <sighs> then again, I also, you know, I was in the Navy. I, I lived on the ocean. It, we have a different relationship. That's, but, but I can that's fair. But I can respect your fears. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about interstellar horror films. Yes. And it's kind of neat. In doing my rewatch, I realized that these films kind of have similar themes. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that we chose to do the ones we are doing. So that's cool. They have more similarities than we realized. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Before we get into it, I do just have a little quick thing. Well, not quick, but like... Here we go. I. <laughs> so first of all, fuck off. <laughs> first one of the episode, yes. Um, second of all... I wanted to bring some facts to the table. Okay. Because I'm one of those people that I really like having like a cool little fact I can just throw into a conversation. Mm. Or just, I don't know, just I like random facts and knowledge and trivia and things of that nature. So I found an article, it's a BuzzFeed news article Mm -hmm. titled 14 facts that'll make you simultaneously scared and amazed at space. Interesting. Now, I'm not going to read all 14, but I picked four. You have four from from the 14. Okay. Yes. And actually, I combined two of them because they're basically like this similar things. So my first fact is about the planet Jupiter. Okay. Tell me about Jupiter. So Jupiter weirdly protects Earth. Mm. It has been dubbed the vacuum cleaner of the solar system. Yeah, it, it catches all the stuff that could have, could uh, ultimately hit Earth, and yeah. it just says, nope, over here. Yeah, its its gravitational force is so strong that it just pulls in, like, asteroids and comets and other space debris 
so it ends up not getting anywhere near us. Thanks, Jupiter. Which is kind of cool. That's the one cool fact I have. Everything else I have is kind of terrifying. (laughs) Okay. So when you watch movies that take place in space, uh, specifically I'm thinking like Star Wars, there's these epic space battles and you're like, there's explosions and there's like the pew pew Mm. of the lasers and stuff. The universe in actuality is silent. Yeah. Uh, On Earth, sound travels through vibrations in the air. And water. And yeah, and, and water. But since there's no air in space, there's no way for sound to travel. So what you're saying is all of those epic space battles that we hear with the and the and all that, all yeah. those noises that hopefully we don't get a claim for me making mouth sounds, but <laughs> I hope not. We should be putting those scenes on mute. Yeah, basically. We should be able to hear like the scenes where they're communicating with each other via like, you know, radio or whatever they're using, but anything exterior there would be no sounds yeah like think of a think of a deprivation chamber where the depraved live what oh sound deprivation chamber yeah 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 or sensory deprivation yes it Uh, would be like that i was like just general depravity no (laughs) i should have been more specific and i'm sorry so if you were to travel in space Mm -hmm. and you did not have a spacesuit your huh you'd be hurting it would be bad yeah your body could swell up to twice its normal size. Oh. Okay. So due to the low pressure, mm-hmm. the boiling point of your bodily fluids decreases below your body's normal temperature. Yes. Which is about 37 degrees Celsius. Okay. That means that the fluids in your body, so like your blood and stuff, will start to form gas bubbles and you will, and your body will swell. Because of those gas bubbles. Because your li- your body liquid is boiling. Yeah. Or trying to anyway. But interestingly enough, you'll swell, but you won't explode. Because human skin is extremely stretchy and has a lot of give. Hmm. So, yeah, you will just expand. That's what elbow skin is for. Gotcha. Right. And <laughs> if you're worried about this being a painful process, don't worry. You'll pass out within about 15 seconds anyway, because of all of the oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Or and it, lack thereof. Yeah. Vacuum well, of space. Yeah. And if you try and hold your breath, your lungs will actually explode due to the lack of outside pressure. Oh, boy. Yeah. So kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't sort yeah. of situation. Yeah. The last thing I have is regarding black holes. Okay. So if you were to fall into a black hole, you would be stretched out like spaghetti. That's the current prevailing theory, yeah. Yeah, these it's science. That's actually the scientific term is spaghettification, which is fun to spell. Yeah, it's what happens when gravity wants to pull you in one direction but squeeze you in another. Hmm. And so, yeah, you just whoop, stretch out and thin out. I'm pretty sure Bethesda figured that out with uh, with mods when you kill an enemy in a lot of games where. Like they get it, all noodly. Yeah, they get all noodly. Yeah. So, really, I mean, we yeah. should look to Bethesda for uh, some help with black holes. What there. it would look like, yeah. yeah. Well, and the cool and terrifying thing is if you were to fall into a black hole and someone was seeing you fall into a black hole, you wouldn't actually disappear. Your body would appear to freeze frame before slowly turning red. But you you would continue to go into the black hole past the event horizon and you would eventually die. Hmm. 
Yeah, I know. It's super weird. I don't know why that is. Should check that out. I know. It's creepy, right? Yeah, that is a little creepy. Yeah. So it's like a freeze frame. Yes. Cool. So yeah, those are some terrifying fucking facts about space. There's also, I found an article that had different uh, pictures Mm -hmm. of things that we've captured where there was one that was titled like Ghosts in Space, where there's like these figures that we don't know what they are. And there was one that's called like the Screaming Skull. Neat. I recommend looking them up. They're actually pretty, they're, again, it's pretty cool, but it's also fucking terrifying. I'm just excited. Like, I understand you're scared, but what you're describing to me, I'm like, wow, we should check that out. It just, it freaks me out. It... Like, Tom, hey, jump over in that black hole. I want to see you turn red. No, <laughs> you know? please don't. Nobody do that. No. Okay, fine. Greg can go. No, no one goes. No. I'm one just picking random people. Anybody listening named Tom or Greg, I am not volunteering you for a black hole. That's something you would have to do on your own. Yeah. Obvi. So let's get into the movies. Yeah. The first movie we're going to talk about is 2009's Pandorum. Yes, I was not aware of this movie until you brought it up. I think this was one of the ones that I saw before you and I got together. And we just, I just never, I don't own it and I just never brought it up. Yeah, like I, I vaguely recall some trailers for it, but again, it was 2009, so. Yeah. So after overpopulation depletes Earth's resources, an interstellar arc carrying 60,000 people in, who are in hypersleep. Mm-hmm. is sent on a 123-year trip to colonize Taunus. Two members of the crew wake from hypersleep sometime later to find their fellow crew members missing, but it doesn't look like they're the only ones who are awake. Uh-oh. I feel like I'm getting really good with writing these plot summaries. <laughs> All right. Anyway, director is uh, Christian Alvart. Screenplay by Travis Malloy. Mm-hmm. The cast, not a really big cast. No. But... Pretty good, actually. Yeah, good cast. Dennis Quaid is Lieutenant Peyton. Recently, he was uh, William Bull Halsey in Midway. Mm-hmm. He's also been in a lot of other stuff. I mean, he's Dennis Quaid. I love Dennis Quaid with a beard. Is that weird? No, I don't think that's weird. Ben Foster is Corporal Bauer. He was uh, Russell Corwin on Six Feet Under. He's also uh, Jake Mazursky in Alpha Dog, which if you've never seen Alpha Dog, great movie. Yeah. It's a tough watch at times, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. Cam Gigande is Corporal Gallo. He was James in Twilight. Okay. One of the mean vampires from the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Antia Trau, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is Nadia. And they actually never say her name in the movie. You only see her name as Nadia in like the credits. She was recently in Man of Steel. She was Fora Ull. Okay. Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, because I'm not a big Superman fan. So. I thought you were going to say you're not Kryptonian. I'm like, duh. Well, I'm not that either. Kung Lee is Mon. He was Bronze Lion and the Man with the Iron Fists. Okay. Eddie Rouse was Leland. He's done a lot of like TV bit work. Okay. Andre Henneke is the Hunter Leader. He's mm. done a lot of stuff in Germany. And... While I have German heritage, I don't speak German, and so I'm choosing not to mention anything specifically because I don't want to butcher it and offend anybody. Right. And then the last one, there is like basically a blink and you'll miss it cameo from Norman Reedus. Yeah, I didn't even notice it until you told me about it. Yeah. It was very early in his career. It was around the same time he did Blade 2. Okay. So there you go. Budget of $33 million, box office of 20.6. Ouch. Which is not great, but it's it's better than it could have been. I mean, Considering, I don't remember this movie really being promoted at all. 
yeah, I don't, like I said, I vaguely remember a general premise or a trailer or something, and I'm like, eh, maybe. Yeah. So this movie, I get very, um, the descent, but in space kind of Mm, vibes. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Because the whole thing with this movie is Earth is gone. Because at some point, as they, this arc is on its way to Taunus, they get the, like a final transmission from Earth that says like, you're all that's left of us. Good luck. Mm-hmm. And in addition to like 60,000 people of varying backgrounds, because like you've got some people that are farmers, some people that are engineers, biologists, biochemists, things of that nature. Yeah. I think it's also cool that they have this one area that Nadia's kind of been taken charge of where they have like plant and wildlife samples. Yeah. From like every biome. Yeah. That they're basically just kind of preserved and ready to kind of help build something that kind of works between. Because right. Because Taunus is an Earth-like planet. Yeah. But it's also not Earth. Right. And it's, as far as they can tell, it's not populated at all. There's plant life, but they don't really mention any animal life. Although it does at, at one point appear that there is some. Yeah. But the long and short of it is it turns out they have been on this voyage a lot longer than they were initially supposed to. Right, because the, the flight crew are in rotations. Like, they have tattoos on their arm, and they they take rotations of right. a certain period of time. Yeah. I don't think they really nailed down, like, how long, if it's, like, two years or... I'm not sure. I think it's a couple years. Yeah. And it, that just it, makes sense. It's a handful of years, so they know, like, okay, we're part of Team 5, so mathematically speaking, we've been on our voyage for yay long. Like, they don't even have to do the math. They're like, okay... We're awake, we're up, it's our turn. You had it, we got it type turnover, you know. Yeah. You know, spend a couple of days kind of briefing each other and, all right, you guys go back to sleep, see you in like a couple decades, whatever. Yeah. Well, and Bauer, at the beginning of the movie, he wakes up and there's like nobody. Yeah. And eventually another person does wake up in uh, Peyton. Peyton mm-hmm. wakes up also. And they do a little bit of investigation. Bauer, because he's younger, mm-hmm. does kind of go out and try and fix because they know something's going on with the reactor mm-hmm. and ends up finding these mutated humans. Mm-hmm. And they remind me, this is where the, the whole the, the descent but in space comes in because they remind me very much of those humanoid creatures in the descent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which in the descent, they never really tell you where those things come from. But my prevailing theory is that they are settlers that got lost. And over generations, they adapted to living in caves, which is what things do. Right. And they find out that the 123 years that they thought they were going to be under, it's actually closer to like 900. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so... Oops. This, in addition to... This um, genetic enzyme that all the settlers were given to kind of help them acclimate to the new planet caused a fast mutation to where these people are no longer people. Right, because when they were out, instead of acclimating to a new planet, they started rapidly acclimating to the ship. Right, so, Liv- living in a living in a ship in space. So, yeah, that apparently you shouldn't... Uh, acclimate to living on a spaceship no i guess so one of my questions and i feel like i have this with a lot of apocalypse type movies Mm -hmm. 
why in apocalypse movies does it always seem like humanity is literally like five seconds from cannibalism? <laughs> because we are. I mean, really? Well, think about it. Anytime there's a group trapped in a mountain range or something for a winter, mm-hmm. everyone just automatically assumes cannibalism. Uh, there were many whaling ships and other other seafaring voyages. Cannibalism wasn't prosecuted because they understood if you run out of food, yeah, they're probably going to eat people. So you take care of them and, you know, you do 1800s type counseling, which is, hey, stop eating people. And it's not like they were per- persecuted. I mean, there there've been plenty of documented cases of that. Yeah, that's fair. So it it just comes down to we are ruthless in wanting to stay alive and humanity will do one of two things. It will give up or it will dominate. I mean, that's at least what I've observed. That's fair. So those who give up become food. Those who are defeated become food. Well, I'm not promoting cannibalism in any way, shape, or form. No. It's just it's just what I've seen from disasters and, and and other situations. That's why these movies say, "Hey, you know, if if we don't, as a society, maybe maybe that's the message. Maybe they're trying to say, "Hey, remember, if we don't, as a society, work together, we're just meat with bones." Right. Well, I mean, other meat has well, bones too, but like we're just talking meat. Yeah, we're talking meat. Well. <laughs> And because the weird thing I have about this, because it's a colony ship, mm-hmm. I assume that there's like at least some freeze dried, like prepackaged food somewhere. Because they, there's no way they can assume that once they get to Tanis, there's automatically going to be food. Right. There's going to be a process of establishing, you know, farming and, and, and things of that nature. So. I don't know. I'm just trying... I guess I'm just like, okay, did they go through that already or did they not even bother? Well, and it also depends on what it is. I mean, is it algae-based? Is it something that needs to be reconstituted? Does it require technology to to turn it from powder or or a, a solid block into food? Because with without access to that, it's no different than saying it's a shoebox. That's fair. Well, because these hunters, well, and then the the Leland guy, we find out he's also been cannibalizing yeah. other survivors to, to keep himself alive. Which, I mean, I he's at least cooking it, from what I can tell. <laughs> Whereas... I love your justification. It's like, well, he uses seasonings and stuff. He, no, I'm just saying, if you're gonna... <laughs> Here you go again, defending cannibalism. I'm not defending cannibalism. <laughs> I'm just saying... If you're gonna eat people, you owe it to yourself to at least cook them properly. <laughs> what? Oh man! I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay. Because we watch. There's these hunters. We watch them like string a guy up and cut his guts open and just start ripping pieces off and like shoving them in their mouths. And I'm like. And they, y'all, they're, they're no better than zombies at that point. I know. That's what I'm just, you know. I, I, I get your point. It's just, I, I am certain now does. we're on some sort of anti-cannibalism watch list where they're like, well, I mean. I'm not saying I would ever eat people. I'm just saying if you're gonna. <laughs> I'm not saying you wouldn't eat people. I'm just saying I wouldn't not not eat people. No, I, Okay. <laughs> It's a taboo that I find fascinating. But not one a, that you wish to partake yes, in. I yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I, I guess that's the best way to, to put it. 
I'm I mean, sorry. Uh, no, no need to be sorry. It's just I want to clarify. Like, I understand personally that I know you aren't going to go out and eat a person. No. But I want to make sure everybody listening also knows Tia's not going to go out and just be like, hey, why is it I'm picturing you with, like, roasted root vegetables? I don't do that. <laughs> And the fun thing is, I was about to promise that next week's episode will be cannibalism free. Um, except next week we're discussing Black Christmas. Yes. So it will not be cannibalism free. Actually discussing it. Yeah, we're actually discussing it, not me doing a fuck up. No, but there's cannibalism in one of those too, so. <laughs> Maybe less focus on cannibalism. Maybe. Actually, well, no, because I'll have thoughts about that too. Okay. Anyway. David, what are some of your thoughts about Pandora? <laughs> I thought it was neat. I I felt like it was not your typical space horror movie. I mean, you still have the... You have confined spaces and sometimes extremely confined spaces. And mm-hmm. the claustrophobia triggers a lot of people's fear senses. So that's that's great to see. And you've got darkness, which is great. But you've also got these like insanely vast spaces. Because when you realize the size of this arc ship is just... It's fucking huge. It's massive. Like, if someone's told me, hey, you need to get this really important thing. It's all the way in the very back of the ship by the reactor. I'd be like, so what are you going to do for the next two months while I'm getting this thing? Because I'm not getting there anytime soon. I mean, that's like a city away. Yeah. On foot. You can't get an Uber to take you to the reactor. You know, I mean, it's not a thing. No. So... You know, this is one of those things where it's like the the variety of spaces. Now, granted, I don't understand some of the the space des like not not space designs as in like space, but like the designs of some of the rooms don't seem practical for a ship. Yeah, that's a problem I actually have with both of these movies. Like you've got this round room that that has like these like it'd be great design for a video game where it's like these are places you can't really jump up and there's a there's a angle to them and then there's some rigid things next to it. it's like where are your walkways where are your railings you know yeah well and the weird thing is you look at movies like this now granted the international space station stuff like that we technology that we currently have is different right but i look at pictures of the international space station and it's it's very clean and white and it's very brightly lit and stuff seems to be set up in a way that it makes sense mm-hmm and then I look at movies like Pandorum and like Event Horizon and, and Sunshine and I'm like, how did we get there? Like, how did we go from clean, white, organized to an industrial club from the late 90s after a bad rave? <laughs> well, I, I think some of the premise that actually works in both ways is the... Okay, let me rephrase. Okay. Space films from, say, the 70s and earlier mm-hmm. look at the construction of a complete ship. Yeah. So, you know, you've got your cockpit in the front and, you know, your your engineering stuff towards the back, like an aircraft, right? Right. Well, aerodynamics aren't really much of a thing in space itself. Right, because there's no air. Right. So, so you don't have to factor. You don't have to worry about drag or anything. So that opens up modular design. Mm-hmm. So you can have modules and kind of plug and play them as as you want. So like like you mentioned, sunshine, you know the 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 place where they were the the greenhouse pod. I'm just going to call it the greenhouse pod where they where they yeah. were getting they were getting oxygen from the plants. They were also having you know a food source and it, it yeah it kind of you know whole ecosystem type thing. 
that could be anywhere. That could be stuck off to the side, you know, however you want it. And when when you look at the structure of this massive thing in Pandorum, you've got these these modules spaced out, and then you've got this kind of interlinking superstructure kind of holding everything yeah. in a group. It It's like a giant, I presume, metal framing, but there's space in between these places too. So there is interconnection, but it's just kind of wherever they need it. And they could add or remove modules as necessary. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's kind of how you get this. I mean, that doesn't explain why it looks like a a industrial nineties rave club, but it, it, it does explain why maybe something might be like, well, why would this be here? And why would we have to go up to find this or, you know, left to find that. Yeah, why is this the way it is? Because it's it's not designed like an airplane, which is how we used to design spaceships. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That that's my theory. No, that's and that's fair. You I asked a question, you have an answer. So I can't guarantee it's a it good may, answer, but it's, I mean it is an answer, so congrats well done. My last thought I have about this particular movie what? You asked what my thoughts were. Did you have more thoughts? You started yes. saying things. All right, say more things. Well, you, you started asking about industrial clubs and stuff. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> Go ahead and do your thing, and then I'll do mine. Sorry, I just have one thing. So they're, they were going to do sequels. Okay. But it didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. And I'm kinda, I kind of wish it had done a little bit better, because I want to know where the story goes. Yeah, I'm kind of curious myself. If there was a book series, I would buy it and read it. Just to find I would out what too. Happens. I would read it. Yeah. I would read the book. Yeah. See, that says a lot. Anyway, continue on with your thoughts. I was just going to say, I really enjoy not all of the directions it went, mm-hmm. but this movie for once actually kind of kept me on my toes. Yeah, definitely. And I would meet characters and be like, so do I trust you? Do I not trust you? I love that they introduced a woman who didn't need the whole damsel in distress. Oh, yeah. She, thing. she didn't she need could, anybody's help. She could handle herself. Yep. You know, there was one point where I'm like, oh, now she needs to be lifted up by this guy. No, she was hanging back so she could spring a trap. That was beautiful. Yeah. Um, there's a, one guy that does not speak the language at all of yeah, anybody he's, else. he's Vietnamese. And once one of our main characters kind of establishes, look, dude, I don't know what you're saying, but if you can show me where the reactor is, that'd be great. And they have a little bit of common ground. And he's like, all right. Yeah. We're, we're not... Obviously not trying to hurt each other, so we are allies. I will protect you. He protect me. It's well, fine. I do love that Bauer initially uh, tries to leave uh, Mon, that, yeah. that particular character, tries to leave him behind. And that would not be my first thought to the dude that just saved my fucking life. Yeah. Mine would be like, hey, come with me and you watch my back while I try and fix the reactor that's busted so that we don't all die. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one interesting thing I liked about this, because usually with when you're talking about science fiction and science fiction horror, and you talk about you know this this like deep hyperspace type sleep where you're in some sort of pod and you're kept in a stasis. Yeah, I like that they really address. And I mean, Pandorum is actually based on a psychosis that can develop in universe. But like when you come out of this this hypersleep, that you're getting more than your usual eight hours. You're getting years, and you're you're kind of being maintained i'm like they're at, at first i was like what is up with the dude's skin but there was like a protective that's actually like layers of his skin oh it's like dead skin it's dead skin okay cool i couldn't tell i mean it kind of looked like he was peeling off thick latex paint but that's not the gross out part i'm talking about i'm not talking about a gross out part i'm just saying 
I think it's neat that they address things like your memory is going to be a bit foggy. Yeah, like you have a little, like a little bit of amnesia and it starts to, you know, your memory starts to come back the longer you're awake. Yeah. And one other thing I really like, uh-huh. I love that razor. Oh, yeah. The, the, the laser razor that he uses to shave. The laser. Which, first of all, I'm curious it, it, how his beard isn't longer if he's been asleep for God knows how long. If it's been, like, centuries, you would think his beard would be longer. Not necessarily. I mean, I, I, I'm sure it would eventually stop growing, but, like, if he's got all these layers of skin, why isn't his beard longer? But then, by that same token, why doesn't he have hair down to his ankles? Th- no, that's what I'm saying. So, so I think there's something within this, you know, because they're already being pumped with these, like, hormones and stuff to help them adapt it's entirely possible also that their entire body's system are just is just slowed down. Slowed the down. Only, the only reason there's that, that skin sheath they wind up with is because you can't really stop you can't really slow down skin cells from just saying, Hey, we need to we need to repair and replace. Right. You don't want that to stop because then you would come out one pruny as hell, just wrinkled up shriveled thing. That's fair. I I wonder what they're doing to prevent muscle atrophy because even if you were in there for four or five years or even eight months, your muscles would atrophy to the point where when you were released from those pods... You would not be able to walk. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of need to be able to do your job when you hop out of those pods. So I wonder if there's some sort of like... Electrostim- um, electrostimulus. Probably. It wouldn't surprise me. Because I think when people... Like when you have someone who is... I don't know this for a fact... But I think when you have someone in a medical type situation, like, say, somebody who's in a coma, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that, like, a hospice or, or a nurse or somebody would do is work the, the their legs so that their muscles don't get super atrophied. I know they do also, like, there's stuff that they do to prevent bed sores and things of that nature. Right. That's not something they would necessarily have to worry about here because they're, like, hanging in these hypersleep pods. Yeah. But... I imagine some sort of electrical stimuli that just kind of like zits. Zzz. How's it going? <laughs> that just kind of zaps, you know, your muscles to just kind of give them a little twitch every so often. Yeah, that's possible. I don't know. It could be another part of the whatever chemicals or whatever they're being pumped with, too. Who knows? Yeah. It, it I don't know. Be. Do you have any further thoughts about Pandorum? It's a really neat premise. I like where it went. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that it didn't do as well as it did in the box office. I feel like it's... I really enjoy the ending. If, if I'm not going to spoil the ending, but I really like where the ending goes. If you like these types of movies, mm-hmm. check it out because it's going to take you through some familiar neighborhoods, but then it's going to show you a part of town you haven't seen. Yeah. It's currently available, at least in the in the U.S., it's available for free on Tubi. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if you don't have access... if. If you don't have access to Tubi where you are, I'm sure it's available to rent somewhere. Yeah. I I really enjoy it. Yeah. Pan- Pandorum was good. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to move on to our last film? Yes. Because I have significantly more to say about this movie. <laughs> okay. It's one of those ones where I watch it probably once a year. I actually watched it a few weeks ago. And then we said we were going to do Interstellar Horror. And I was like, well, I guess I'm watching it again. <laughs> So let's talk about 1997's Event Horizon. Yeah. The experimental starship Event Horizon was on her maiden voyage when she suddenly disappeared. Seven years later, it mysteriously turns back up near Neptune. Mm. The crew of the Lewis and Clark, along with the Event Horizon's designer, are sent to salvage what they can and rescue any remaining crew. 
Unfortunately for them, the ship has other plans. Ooh, yeah. I'm so proud of that. I wrote that from scratch. I'm so happy. Sorry, I get weirdly excited when I write something that's I find interesting. I'm proud of your work. Thank you. I, I like your work. It's good. So directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, but this was before they added the W.S. Yeah, so, so it just, it just says Paul, Paul Anderson. Anderson. <laughs> it, it, it gave me Nightmare on Elm Street 3 when it's like uh, with Larry Fishburne. And Instead like, of Lawrence Fishburne? I'm like, Larry Fishburne? Is he? Do you mean Lawrence Fishburne? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they do. No, it's just Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson. Screenplay by Philip Eisner. Speaking of Lawrence Fishburne, he's in this movie. Yes, he is. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne is uh, Captain Miller. Mm-hmm. Most recently, he's been in the uh, John Wick films. He's the Bowery King. Mm-hmm. He's also Morpheus in the Matrix films. He's oh, yeah. been in a lot. He was, was Cowboy Curtis on Pee Wee's Playhouse when I was a kid. Yeah, and he was... Uh, I can't remember the name of the orderly in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yeah, I don't remember. Sam Neill is Dr. Weir. He's mm. Dr. Alan Grant in the Jurassic Park franchise, but he's also been in a lot of other stuff. I know he was on Peaky Blinders. He also got to say sorry about your balls. Oh, that's right. In the Mouth of Madness. He was in that too. <laughs> I forgot we mentioned that. <laughs> I forgot. Look, we talk about so much stuff that sometimes I forget what we've talked about. So apologies. I forgot we've mentioned Sam Neill before. Kathleen Quinlan is Peter's. She was Nancy Casey on Chicago Fire. Mm-hmm. Jolie Richardson is Lieutenant Stark. I I do remember that we have talked about her before mm-hmm. because she was the mom, Teresa, in Colorado Space. Yes. And I actually, she's going to be playing Ethel Cripps in the Sandman series. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. So that's cool. Uh, Richard T. Jones is Cooper. He was Rick on Santa Clarita Diet. Okay. He's also, I was rewatching this movie and I was trying to figure out where I recognized him from. Mm-hmm. He's in uh, Kiss the Girls, one of the two Morgan Freeman, Alex Cross films. Mm-hmm. He's his niece's boyfriend. Okay. That helps with the investigation. Jack Noseworthy is Justin. He was Randy in Idle Hands, mm-hmm. which I've actually never seen. I should probably really? fix that. Yeah, I've oh, never yeah, seen Oh, yeah, we should fix that. Jason Isaacs is DJ. Yes. Most people will recognize Jason Isaacs from the Harry Potter franchise where he's Lucius Malfoy, but he was also uh, Georgie Zukov in The Death of Stalin, mm-hmm. which again, if you haven't seen The Death of Stalin, you should really watch it because it's the best. Yes. Uh, and then we have Sean Pertwee as Smitty. He was uh, father in Equilibrium. Mm-hmm. He's also Alfred on Gotham. Yes. So. Yes. This is another movie that did not do well. Budget of $60 million, box office of $42 million. And I honestly wonder how much of that is because the studio kind of wimped out and made some questionable edits, hmm. which they then later regretted. They were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have cut this stuff. Can we put it back in? And they were like, well, no, because we don't know where the footage is, because this is 1997. And you told us to throw it away, so we yeah. threw it away. We, we can't unthrow it away. Yeah. Paul W.S. Anderson and I think the cinematographer have been trying to find the, the lost footage from Event Horizon pretty much since 1997. Oh, wow. And they keep getting close, but like, it'll be too degraded, or it turns out it's been destroyed. Supposedly... There is a VHS tape 
that has an uncut version of the film. Hmm. But they don't know for sure because Paul basically wants him and the cinematographer to be together when they watch it and their schedules just keep not matching up. So is it weird that I just had like uh, happy together playing in my head? It's like Paul just saying, I just want to sit there with you and watch it. I know. That's all I want to do. Well, because some of what they cut is like the stuff from the Event Horizon's original crew. Oh, uh, sometimes the, people call it the Space Gore Orgy. Yeah, the Space Gorgy. Yeah. Space Gorgy, yeah. Yeah, that's some of the stuff that was cut, unfortunately. So let's get into my thoughts about this movie. Uh, as I was telling you earlier this evening, I have a lot more thoughts about this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just because I've watched it so many times, I think, is probably why. So the first thing I want to mention is I really love the score. Mm. It's this weird, like, pseudo-industrial kind of thing mm-hmm. that I just, it especially in, like in the opening credits, it just gets me weirdly pumped, and I don't know why. I know why. Oh, okay. Why? Well, uh, first I have to actually credit Austin Wintry, a composer who has a YouTube channel called You Gotta Hear This. Or, uh, uh, not a channel, but... I mean, he's got a channel. He's got his own YouTube channel, but he... He's got a series that he does with Troy Baker, uh, voice actor extraordinaire that we've gushed about, about one character he's played. Anyway, uh, called You Gotta Hear This, and they talk about different composers. And so I've gotten to learn more about soundtracks and composers, and, you know, certain composers have their own certain little signatures and little, little styles, even if, like, Danny Elfman says that the best compliment you can give him is saying, oh, I had no idea that was Danny Elfman. Yeah. Because he like he likes variety and he likes doing things. I think I know deep down a reason why you like this score. Why is that? Well, the uh, composer was Michael Kamen. Okay. Uh, or I should say the late Michael Kamen. He, uh, What's he late for? He, he died November 18th, <laughs> I'm 2003. Sorry. I'm sorry. I just had to make that. I'm sorry. Jeez. Rest in, rest in peace. I'm sorry. Hopefully you were the kind of person that would have found that joke hilarious. Anyway, continue. Well, I mean, you tell me. Look at his picture. That's he would have found that joke hilarious. Yeah, he, he, he would have probably laughed it off. So he did a lot of film scores. Okay. So I'm going to run through just some highlights to see if I can paint a picture, and then I'm going to top it off with a cherry. How's that? That sounds great. I love cherries. Okay. His first score was The Next Man in 1976. That's just giving you a starting mark. Mm-hmm. Okay. He... Collaborated with Pink Floyd and Bob Ezrin for Pink Floyd, The Wall. Really? Huh. He did the score for The Dead Zone. You know, David Cronenberg and and all that jazz. Yeah. Brazil. Okay. Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Toby Hooper's Life Force. Okay. Edge of Darkness, which was a TV miniseries composed with Eric Clapton. Weird. Which, that's the first time that he worked with with Eric Clapton. And also Life Force, he worked with Henry Mancini. Oh, nice. Um, Nice. He just, he just did, okay, so for Life Force, he just did additional additional music. Most of it was done by Mancini, so it was kind of a fill-in. Yeah. But then he did Highlander. Okay. He did Lethal Weapons 1 through 4. Okay. Uh, Adventures in Babysitting. Huh. Die Hard. <gasps> Nuh-uh. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Renegades, Caruso, License to Kill, Roadhouse, Die Hard 2, Nothing But Trouble, that really bizarre movie that if you haven't seen, you should see it and then forget you ever watched it because it's it's great and horrible at the same time. Uh, it's a Dan Aykroyd Yeah, no, I can, see, there, yeah. I can see the box. Uh, Hudson Hawk. Okay. Which is a, a great Bruce Willis uh, 
No, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. It's I haven't good. seen it, but I know of it. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Nuh-uh. Yes. I fucking love Robin. That has such a great score. By the way, did you know that Eric Clapton worked worked with this guy uh, on all of the Lethal Weapon scores? I did not. Although yeah, yeah. that kind of tracks because there's like a weird jazziness to it. Yeah. The Last Boy Scout, Tales from the Crypt. He did four episodes. That's cool. Uh, let's see. Uh, Last Action Hero, Three Musketeers, Don Juan DeMarco, Circle of Friends, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Stonewall, Mr. Holland's Opus. Okay. Need I, 101 Jesus. Dalmatians, the 1996 one. Yeah. Uh, Inventing the Abbots, this movie, Event for Horizon. Yeah. What Dreams May Come, The Iron Giant. Am I hit? Am I hitting any of no your way. lifetime feels? No way! He did the Iron Giant. Frequency, the X Men, the first Brian Singer X Men. Damn, my dude. Band of Brothers. Shit, he did a lot. Yeah, so he's pretty much hit most of our touchstones of films yeah. from from the seventies to now. I mean, he's done a whole bunch more within here. Yeah. Um, but now, ready for the cherry? Yes. What is the cherry? I decided to look at his concert works. And at one point in time, I owned one of his albums and didn't know it. Okay. S&M with Metallica. That hmm. was that, that symphony with Metallica. Yeah. And that was the first time I ever heard, like, symphonic-type metal. And then I dove into, like, Nightwish. And then I went even more niche and then more niche and then more niche. And then found baby metal somehow. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. So, like, I've known five different people I was in the Navy with that we all had that album. Yeah. Because it was just... That you know, cool. Well, I mean, listening to Metallica, but like hearing like cellos and violins and and brass being brought into it, it just gives it a whole different flavor and a different life. And just like with the music for Event Horizon, it's got a very distinct, it belongs. It belongs in the movie. It, it's not a score about a place. It's a score of the place. Yeah. Like you get the studio fanfare, but then it in, in, it instantly goes into this like, digga, digga, da, digga, 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 da. But it's like very... Shut up. Fuck off. Get that. Dig Dug's there? Like, it's like. And it's very, like, industrial. Like, I don't know how to describe it. And with the mutated former humans, it almost seems to a hearkening tribal. What mutated former humans? It's the other movie. Oh, yeah, 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 no. So, see, I'm still thinking Pandorum because reasons. So one of the things that always kind of amuses me mm-hmm. about this movie, I get this. With, okay. <laughs> you get this with movies sometimes where they are extremely like ambitious and hopeful of where we're going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. And like, they'll say, this is what happens in this year. And this is what happens in this year. And you're like, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah. The, the opening little, not yeah. really crawl, but like. 2015, first permanent colony established on the moon. It's like, no. No. No, not even not even close. Probably not even 2025. <laughs> no, I would honestly be surprised. 2030, maybe. Well, then there's Ambitiously. An, yeah, and there's another one that says like 2030-something. Um, 2030-something. Terraforming Mars. Not terraforming, but like mining. Oh, yeah, mining on, on Mars. Mars. And yeah. I'm like, well, that's more likely, probably. Yeah, probably. But... So yeah, this, I just love when that happens in a sci-fi movie where they're like, this is going to happen in this year and that year has already passed. Mm. And I'm like, no, 
No, not at all. Well, there there were a whole bunch of movies back in the late 80s that were like, this is the class of 1997, and I'm like, oh, I gotta check this out, and like, like steampunk punks with like, everybody had mohawks and bright colored hair, I'm like, you're off by a couple decades, yeah. buddy, but they weren't, they weren't all mohawks, uh, just we all dyed our hair. One of my favorites is when you look at Back to the Future Part 2, <laughs> and you see where they thought we were going to be in 2015. Some of it was actually like kind of accurate, but the rest of it, they were like, Jaws movie was like, Jaws 23 in 3D. I was like, no. You overestimated the draw for Jaws. Just a little bit. I'm still annoyed that we don't have actual hoverboards. Mm, like yeah. actual hoverboards, not yeah. the bullshit that we got. Yeah. The fire hazards. Yes. So a lot of people call Event Horizon Hellraiser in space. Yeah. Which is hilarious because there actually is a, a Hellraiser, Hellraiser in, in space, space movie, Hellraiser Bloodlines. Mm -hmm. This is a better Hellraiser in space movie than the actual Hellraiser in space movie. If nothing else, for just one line. Which one? Uh, the one where like he he envisions his wife... And she's like, we have so many things to show you. No, I actually pointed, I actually have that marked out because, what was it? Shit. Yeah, she says, we have such sights to show you. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's Hellraiser. That's Hellraiser, 100%. And then you look at this, like, reactor drive thing that, that folds space or whatever. And I'm like... The gravity drive. Yeah, the gravity drive. You may as well just say, okay, so the Lament configuration was a prototype. Yeah. This thing is much more advanced but i've seen rubik's cubes that are like like spheres and dodecahedrons and stuff so well, and that's the funny thing is because if you look at um hellraiser bloodlines that whole film is basically about a guy who is the descendant of le marchand making a spaceship to try and capture and kill the cenobites in space yeah but why i don't know you realize we're going to have to watch these now. No. Please? Uh, we're going to run out of awesome stuff. I, Not if people keep making it. Fair, but still. If Ari Aster and Mike Flanagan and other guys continue <laughs> making good shit, we don't have to look at things that are awful. Well, then I love... Well, here's the thing. I like looking at things that are considered awful yeah. or ugly or unliked. Because I can find the beauty in it. That's fair. That's, that is a fair statement. I really can't say much considering I live tweeted Hollow Man earlier this week. So, you know. And it was enjoyable. And you had valid points. I do have valid points. Thank you. I well, usually do. You didn't need me to validate you. I'm just saying no, I I'm agree aware. with your points. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I like, we'd get, say, like a hypersleep kind of thing in mm -hmm. both of these movies. I will say if I had to travel in space and I had the option between the hypersleep chambers of Pandorum or the these grav couch, what they call they call them grav couches, which just sounds so chill. I know, right? I would prefer the grav couch. Yeah. It looks like a better experience. Also, no amnesia. Yeah. It sounds awesome. Potential disorientation, but other than that, no amnesia. Yeah, apparently you wipe yourself off, you drink some coffee and you're fine. Yeah. Granted, they were only in the grav couches for like 58 days instead of several centuries. So who knows? Maybe it's a nearly a millennium. Maybe prolonged exposure is a factor. I don't know. Probably. That's also pretty impressive 
to get from wherever they were in low Earth. Because uh, they, they, they started they off started in low a, Earth orbit. Yeah, there's, a, there's basically a space station. Yeah. And they made it in 58 days to... Neptune. Neptune. Mm-hmm. That's pretty damn impressive. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think the guy... Uh, DJ... He said that, uh, yeah, you're going to want to be in a graph couch because we're going to hit 38 Gs. Yeah, something like that. And you would the... wind up liquefying if, if you didn't. Yeah, if you weren't in a graph couch. Yeah. So I'm like, wow, 38 Gs? Yeah. That's, I have I have no frame of reference for that much pressure. gravitational pressure. Yeah, yeah that's, because like three Gs is like having. Three of you. Pressed against yourself. Yeah. So this would be like. I would imagine it would become exponential at some point. Yeah. Everything seems to just become exponential. So it's not like 38 of me. Right. It'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah, I don't know. So the whole thing with this is Dr. Weird designed this ship, the Event Horizon, to travel. It's technically not faster than light travel because that's, you can't really do that. But he talks about folding. Basically, the gravity drive folds space mm-hmm. to where two points exist at the same place in time so it seems like you're basically like teleporting but not really right my coworker dan is actually like super into science mm-hmm. he found a video for me that i haven't gotten to watch yet unfortunately that is by this guy who does who talks about different scientific theories yeah and he talks about folding space and right. the scientific because that was my question i was like how when I have scientific movies like this, one of my questions is, how much is this bullshit and how much of it is a distinct possibility if we had the technology available? Well, I know I've, I've read some articles about uh, using, and I don't know the mechanics behind it because it's been a while since I read the article and I don't have like a, I, I don't have a photocopy of it in my brain, mm-hmm. but it does something with magnetic fields and instead of... Like, the propulsion is basically using the absence of a magnetic field in front. It it's basically creates an absence, so you're actually just falling forward. Yeah. You know, at, at ex- exceptional speeds. Yeah. And so it's it's energy efficient as, as far as, like, for a power plant, and also exceptionally fast because you're just using the emptiness in front of you. Yeah. To propel you, and so you're, you're kind of and f- bending... Space, yeah. rather than traveling through it, you're bending it. Because for this, they basically talk about how it's essentially creating like a black hole or a wormhole. Right, without spe- without spaghettification. It's, right. It's, ju- it's just saying, okay, so this is this is the point we're at, and we're going to use this drive to yeah. create that other point at the same point, and then we exit one point and we're still there we're still in one and not in the other so it's like transferring a penny from one finger to the other right so yeah this this ship the event horizon it's the only one of its kind and it was on its maiden voyage when it disappeared it had reached safe minimum distance to turn the gravity drive on to try and do this leap right and then it just disappeared well it was top secret so they they had to get far enough away that no one would notice what it was doing right well and if something went wrong so it it wouldn't fuck anything up no we'll just fuck it up later right (laughs) well and so the official story was that it was destroyed yeah and that's it turns out that's not true it just disappeared now it's back so 
Dr. Weir and the Lewis and Clark are going to see if anybody's still alive, get any kind of information they can. And they mention that where Neptune is, as far as in relation to other like space stations and stuff, mm-hmm. is they're basically on their own. If anything happens, they're fucked. Yeah. One thing that I thought was amusing in this part is when they're doing like their, their debrief after they wake up from their hypersleep, mm-hmm. Captain Miller says that they're three billion clicks from the nearest help. And I'm like, why are you saying, why are you using click? Because a click is a mile, isn't it? Kilometer. Is a kilometer? That's why you get click. Okay. So, but I feel like if you're in space, like, is there not a better unit of measure than to say three billion clicks? Not at that short of a distance. We're, we're still in our solar system, so we're not even interstellar at this point. We're still within the stellar. We're that not, just seems we're weird. Inter- so so you, you measure a linear distance. Because I always hear, in other stuff, when I hear the word, oh, we're so many clicks, it's always a military thing where they are walking or driving a vehicle. Yeah. It's still so a linear I guess, distance. I, so I guess just the concept of three billion clicks is just so massive i was like you think they would have thought of something else like honestly i i would think with space travel and this this these exceptional distances i like to think of distances more as time especially Mm. especially if you walk somewhere right you don't necessarily have the measure of mileage that that you're walking to a place as much as you would say i can get there in 30 minutes that's fair i can get there in 15 minutes so if you think about it in that way yeah, they probably could have said we're we're you know forty five days from the nearest help. I mean, okay, you know, again, I'm gonna fall back on like disaster people stranded movies where they potentially start nomming on each other. They might say, "Hey, the nearest help is you know five days away." That's fair. Which, if they start coming to you and you start going to them, doesn't that make it about two and a half days to potentially meet each other if you're following the same path? Otherwise, if you're following the same path and if they know to come look for you. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of ifs in that. That's true. So I, as much as I am for helping people, if a ship has been gone for mm-hmm. seven years and suddenly reappears, and the only transmission that you receive from said ship is terrified screaming and someone speaking in latin mm-hmm. maybe just let that go <laughs> it can stay in neptune we don't need we don't need that ship anymore that ship is that sh- that ship is haunted <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go there anymore although i do think it's interesting that weir and the other scientists that presumably have already heard this transmission didn't recognize that the person who was speaking, they recognized that it's, they're like, oh, we did it through, ran it through some filters and it sounds like a human voice. None of them recognized that the person was speaking Latin. Look, engineers aren't necessarily linguists. Right, but you're, you're telling me that nobody ran that through anything that, like any kind of translator, nobody attempted to translate what was being said. Lack of human understanding. I'm just saying, for a scientist, Weir's pretty fucking stupid. As someone who has worked on equipment designed by engineers, I mean, I love you engineers, but as someone who has worked on equipment designed by someone who doesn't work on equipment, y'all hate us, don't you? Because, like, you'll you'll put the most high-fail thing in the hardest-to-reach spot that requires, like, five hours of work to get to. Yeah. They're not going to think about translating languages. They're just going to be like, someone will know. Well, I'm just, somebody on the invest, I'm just saying, 
With something like this, you would think there would be a group of people who it's their job to try and figure out what happened. And one of them might be like, hey, since this sounds like a person talking, maybe we should figure out what this person is trying to say. But since the ship was on a top secret thing and all the information about it was top secret, they probably would want to limit the number of people that learned about the transmission, let alone heard the transmission. Right. I'm just saying you would think one of the people in that very small group. I don't know. I mean, perhaps I'm presuming too much about people's intelligence, not necessarily intelligence, but willingness to communicate or ability to communicate effectively. It sounds like their give a fuck is busted, really. Yeah. So the next thing I kind of want to talk about is when Mm. there's some damage to the Lewis and Clark. Yeah. So they have to go over to the event horizon. I get that there is an emergency. And so they're trying to act fast, but... It weirds me out that Peters doesn't try and secure that body that's just floating around Mm -hmm. before turning on the gravity, because the whole thing with the Event Horizon, when Peters, Justin, and Miller are over there investigating, they're having to use, like, magnetic boots because the gravity's not on. Right. So when she's on the bridge, there's this mutilated body that's just floating around, and I would think because part of your job is figuring out what happened, you would try and secure that in some way before you turn on the gravity because it falls to the ground and it shatters. Yeah. And I was watching that and my first thought was like, well, there goes any evidence mm-hmm. that you could have gotten of as to what happened from that body because you can't exactly do an autopsy on shattered remains. Yeah, because it fell to pieces. Yeah, literally fell to pieces. So I'm going to jump forward a little bit. Sounds good. I mean, sorry. A lot happens in this movie. Yeah. There's, I highly recommend watching it. It's super good. Uh, The hallucinations are great. Mm. Well, not great, but like, I kind of like how it plays with everybody. I, I get the distinct feeling that it's the ship and the influence that it has tailors itself to the person. Oh yeah, absolutely. One thing I'm curious about is do you think Dr. Weir was already crazy and the ship made it worse? Because he seems to succumb to madness pretty quickly and also very willingly. He definitely seems to have some, and again, I'm not a psychologist, but just based on a layman's analysis, mm-hmm. I would say he he fits some archetypes of both narcissists and megalomaniacs. Mm-hmm. That tracks. But then again, you know, when your name is Dr. Weir, I mean, I mean, doctor is, is, you know, you could be a doctor in a field or a medical doctor or whatever, but it's like, there's just something about him, a, a certain level of, like, he wants to be all closed and, and, and say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's classified. And it's like, look, motherfucker, you're asking us who we, we didn't have to be here. We are here. Because, they were supposed to be on leave. Yeah. We're here. We could be over there. And now you want us to drag our asses out here, so you better start talking, Mm -hmm. or you can start walking. Well, and plus he's got significant, he's dealt with trauma because his wife committed suicide. So he's got that. I also wonder if this ship, because basically they get the impression that the ship is alive Mm -hmm. because of it being in this alternative dimension or whatever. Yeah. I wonder if it exacerbates existing conditions. And the thing that made me wonder this uh, specifically is Mr. Justin. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm curious if maybe he had depression, but it was under control because he talks about the dark inside me being mm-hmm. influenced by what's going on with the ship and everything. Yeah, something about it knows the dark inside me. Or it see- knows the darkness inside me. It see, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious if it if it exacerbates like if you like it plays on Miller's PTSD about that crewman that died. Mm-hmm. It plays on Peter's insecurities regarding her son. So in a way, it really doesn't work any different than a possession film. Basically, it, it, yeah. It, it it finds that wedge point, that way to pry you away from your sanity and slips in. Because the whole thing is, the thought is that this, the ship essentially went to a hell-like dimension. Although at one point, Weir says, uh, hell is only a word. The reality is much, much worse. Which yeah. I just think is a cool line. Which again, sounds like something a hell priest from the order of the gash of cenobites would say right exactly so i'm like okay so you're you're a cenobite in everything but name yeah now i want cinnabon i'm sorry so i have two things regarding the end of this film okay so if you haven't seen this movie and you want to go ahead and shut us off now go watch it and come back it's currently on hulu if you have hbo the hbo Mm add-on or if you just have hbo max it's on there yeah so i'm I'm curious if the ship is going to reappear in another seven years. Seven years. Well, because here's the thing. It just, the the original crew is dead. They're gone. Yeah. So how did it just randomly show up again after seven years? Mm. And what's to stop it from doing that exact same thing again? And my question is, will it reappear in the same place or will it be closer to Earth? Yeah. Will it appear? Will it, who knows? The other thing I have is specifically regarding the fate of Captain Miller. Mm -hmm. And this was actually something that somebody else online pointed out. And when I got to thinking about it, I was like, fuck, that's a good point. So, again, spoilers. At the end of the film, Miller sacrifices himself to separate the part of the event horizon that has the gravity drive from the lifeboat section basically yeah, and the remaining members of his crew yeah uh stark cooper and justin right and then the part of the event horizon that has the gravity drive in it disappears again into this black hole or it just kind of goes away into nothing really it's yeah. hard to describe so miller doesn't die right since they separate the part with the gravity drive from the lifeboat section He's in that section when it gets sucked into the alternate dimension with the remains of the ship. Mm-hmm. So he is still alive and who knows, experiencing what kind of torture in this hell dimension. Added on to this, since they died on the event horizon, does that mean that Peters and DJ are in that hell dimension too? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. Because Smitty died on the Lewis and Clark. So he's, yeah. he's fine hopefully. But Peters and DJ died on the event horizon. Yeah. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Also, how do we know it's going to direct out of this hell dimension? How do we know it's not going to go to a completely different dimension? I'm just assuming it's going to, based on Justin's reaction, because he goes through and then comes back. Mm. I'm just assuming it's the same place. Especially considering Weir, when he says he's going to show Miller... And like touches him on the head and he sees the the visions from hell of his yeah. crew being tortured. I'm just assuming that, I don't know. Yeah. So I do have a couple of fun facts. Okay. 
Uh, speaking of the visions of hell, mm-hmm. as well as the ship's video log of the Gorgi, mm-hmm. these were actually inspired by the works of 16th century Renaissance painters Hieronymus Bosch okay. and Peter Brugel. As I guess Paul W.S. Anderson was touring some art galleries with the production designer mm-hmm. when he was trying to figure out how he wanted the movie to look. Yeah. And he was fascinated by their paintings in particular, since those painters clearly believed in the reality of hell as the complete antithesis of heaven. Okay. So their paintings are considered both terrifying and beautiful. Right. I actually, I had to Google and because I, I wasn't super familiar with their work. And I Googled some of the paintings and looked at them and I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying and beautiful? Uh, mostly terrifying but yeah beautiful also but like less i don't know well i guess in a way you know just like i've i've said before and i'll continue to say anything can be a horror if you try hard enough that's true you can always find the beauty in something and i i I mean i don't want to sound like you know i'm staring at a plastic bag floating in the wind you know as as the most beautiful thing but i mean yeah the 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 curve on the handle of of a pair of scissors could be like wow that's actually really pleasant it's all about perspective yeah uh so the space suits that were worn by the actors mm-hmm. those were 65 pounds or 30 kilograms each wow uh lawrence fishburne actually nicknamed his doris <laughs> due to the weight standing upright in them for long periods of time could actually lead to back injuries But because of the way they were designed, you couldn't really sit down in them either. So they actually made uh, what they called hanging poles. (laughs) So the actors could rest between takes. So they were basically still in the suits, but like hanging from these poles so that they could rest. Wow. So they they actually kind of found a way to put themselves in a waking stasis. Yeah. So although this film met with mostly negative reviews... And didn't have a great box office. It's got this huge cult following now. Hmm. Paul W.S. Anderson has said that the movie's cult status was actually predicted to him. So would you... Was this before or after he left the event horizon? This was after he made the film. (laughs) This was actually in 1998. Okay. So in 1998, he was getting ready to work on the movie Soldier Mm -hmm. with Kurt Russell. Yeah. And he screened Event Horizon for Kurt Russell. Mm -hmm. And Russell said, forget about what this movie is doing now. In 15 years time, this is going to be the movie you're glad you made. You know what? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if he was just being nice, that's really sweet coming from Kurt Russell. I know, right? Like, like part of me, like, I don't know how much it was, it was, you know, prediction and how much it was, you know, just being polite or nice. Or just being blown away by a concept and, and just giving a genuine reaction. Well, Either way. And Kurt Russell's been in the industry for so long. Yeah. I mean, and he's been in some sci-fi classics that it, also didn't really do well at the time, but are now highly loved. Like, I mean, The Thing didn't do well when it was first released. Neither did Escape from New York. I mean, yeah, he's he's familiar with that concept of... People may not appreciate it now, but they will definitely appreciate it later. Mm. That's my take on it, at least. Fair. Do you have any final thoughts about Event Horizon? I have a sad thought. What's your sad thought? Why sad? Well, I remembered enjoying the movie. Uh Uh-huh. I dozed off six times today watching it. 
Oh no. <laughs> I mean, granted, granted, I am working some some pretty long hours right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I'm I watched sorry. Pandorum yesterday, and I watched Event Horizon today. Uh huh. And there were some entire sequences that I just felt like were dragging, where it was just visuals. Yeah. But like nothing really happening, and that's fair. I was out cold, and then I had to go back and find the spot, and then be like, "All right, back to it." And it felt like, I mean, I'm sure it was just a few minutes, but it felt like half an hour of work trying to find the place that I felt, you know, dozed off in. Yeah, I got that. And, I mean, I'm sure the pacing is fine, but it's also the fact that I've seen the movie several times. Yeah. So, it wasn't new information, and since I wasn't getting new information, I was only getting visuals, it just really didn't do anything for me. No, I get that. I mean, I... Don't get me wrong, it's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. I think probably if you weren't exhausted, it probably would have been easier to... To be fair, uh if I was watching on a TV, I would have fast-forwarded through the visuals part, because again, it's I still think it kills the pacing. That's fair. Like, I would much rather someone just say, I saw something horrific, and not see the visuals, because it's nothing but visual garbage to me. Okay, that's fair. Uh, not saying that the movie is visual garbage. It's just some of the like hallucinations and stuff. Like the ones that are kind of grounded and make sense, sure. But like the one with Pete, the one in, at, towards the end with Peters and her kid really annoys me. Yeah, that one actually does infuriate me because it's like, okay, you know, at this point, you know that you're hallucinating. You know that what you're seeing isn't real. And here's the other way that you know that what you're seeing isn't real. You're seeing a hallucination of your son who is running away from you. But your son, in reality, is in a wheelchair on Earth. Yeah. So why the fuck are you chasing him? Go get those CO2 filters yeah, back seriously. on the ship. You had to get that last one to get 25. You made sure of it. Yeah. And now you're just dropping this shit everywhere. I know. Fuck. Seriously. Come on, people. Anyway. Still a good movie. I still yeah. highly recommend it, it if you haven't it, seen it. It's good. It's good. Please don't let my my temporary crapping on, on some of the scenes poo-poo you from the okay i'm gonna get out of the toilet stuff i'm just yeah <laughs> look i'm tired uh, i know i'm exhausted yeah I've been let's let's two, wrap two weeks of split shifts i know let's wrap this up all right yeah. are you ready are you ready to wrap it up yeah let's do it all right as always you can find us on our socials through our website it's uh, h2horrorcast.com you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter. You can email us there directly. Mm-hmm. There's also links to our Patreon. Mm-hmm. We are patreon.com slash h2horrorcast. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Exactly. Uh, that would be awesome. If you would, if you want to do that, great. If you are not able to, we totally understand. Yeah. Shout out to current patrons, Liz, Lizzie, Gray, and Mom. Yeah. We love and appreciate you. Yes, thank you very much. If you are wanting to support us in another way, you could recommend us to a friend or you can write us a review on places where reviewing things is an option. Yeah. And I think that's going to do it. Yeah, I think so. We've had a long week and it's almost one o'clock in the morning. Oh, snap. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So until next time, I'm Tia. And I'm still David. And stay spooky, friends. Music for this episode is Save Us Now by Shane Ivers. Our artwork is by Catherine Nixon.